Just a thought before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to talk about the Fomorians a little bit. Also called the Fomor, as well as various other iterations, all of which are anglicized versions of their Gaelic names, the Fomorians are treated equally as monsters and as invaders, as human as any of the generations of Irish settlers, such as the Tuatha Dé Danann. This gets a little confusing, so I've elected to do what many have done before me and create a fusion of these two approaches. Many appear normal, though perhaps far less civilized than the Tuatha Dé Danann, capable of combat, magic, and cruelty, or even kindness. <laughs> Just kidding. As anyone else. Others, like King Valor, are more abomination. The giants we might expect are mouse-shaped creatures with three arms, two legs, hunched back. The typical monstrous humans of Northern European lore. What denotes the difference between these two? Often their personality. The more monstrous the Fomorian, by their own standards, in spirit, then the more monstrous their appearance. And none are more monstrous than Valor. It's a point from last week's episode I wanted to reflect upon, and I just wanted to throw that out there. Now, let's get to this week's episode. Previously on Goddessy. Lou, raised by three foster parents to meet a great destiny, has returned to Ireland. Instead of emerald plains and verdant hills and forest, he found only ash and soot. His people have made peace with the invading Fomorians and are led by some usurper, Brez, for High King Nuwada is no longer whole. Commanded by the Phantom Queen, the Morrigan herself, he now seeks Ogma, champion of King Nuwada, who has been enslaved by the Fomorians. There, he will find the path to his father and his destiny. Welcome to Goddessy, Episode 6, In the Halls of the King. The man around the fire had grown smaller in his captivity, but from his place in the darkness, Lou recognized him all the same, seeing through his magic at a distance. Shackled by rope and bronze around his tattooed wrist, the dirt that covered him almost hid the strange markings. A beard grew long and unkept, his braids that had been there replaced with murky, filthy hair, matted and missing in places, like giant holes of pulled hair. His muscles were large, but now misshapen in places. His shoulders and arms were overlarge, his chest and legs less so. He was no longer balanced, for they made him work long hours, in day and night. For now, they had thrown him back in his pit, bound him in chains, and given him mere lettuce to eat, grown wild nearby. He was eating only what they found for him to eat at the end of each day, Lou assumed. He certainly looked it. Ogma. The bound man barely moved his eyes looking around the darkness for something that was not there. A new tormentor, come with magic. I cannot see you, yet you are close. Be you druid or sorcerer? Lou laughed, perceptive. Lou released the magic he drew from the earth that cloaked him in darkness. He appeared as a specter within the fire, blade in hand, ready if needed. Despite this, the muscular man did not move. You are no friend of the Fomorians. Lou smiled. How did you guess? Because you would not feel the need to conceal yourself in shadow. Yet you were not of our people, or I would recognize you. And yet, I see some familiarity in you. Lou interrupted him. I see Kian. Ogma's eyes narrowed, moving from exhausted to perplexed. The fire crackled, filling the silence. Somewhere in the distance, an insect chirped, despite the lack of green. I do not keep up with the comings and goings of the court. You will need to speak to King Brez to know the whereabouts of Kian Mekant. Ogma regarded him carefully. 
Bres has sold his own people into bondage to keep his Fomorian kin happy, has he not? Who can I trust there? Ogma nodded. Many are willing to work against him, if not speak against him. Turian may help you on your quest, but he has no love of Kian. Quite the contrary. No, your best bet is the Queen. Lube at the side of his mouth. The Queen? I can trust the Queen of Brez. When you can trust no other soul in Tara, you will always find a trustworthy soul in Bridget. She loves her people before she loves anything, and our sorrow is hers. So long as no threat comes to her son Ruidan, you will have her support. Then I shall go to Tara, said Lou, and he felt the earth's magic surge up in his legs. Wait, whispered Ogden, suddenly wary of being silent. You will find your paltry fairy magic has no effect there. You will not be able to enter unseen. Your cunning must be your wits and nothing else. Are you capable? Lou smiled before disappearing. I am more than capable. Thank you, Agma. Shall I free you too? And bring the wrath of Balor down on our already suffering shoulders of our people? I think not. Let them do their worst. Our people are without hope. It died at the knell. His voice was more distant now as he moved away. I wouldn't be so sure. Agma looked up toward the sound of the voice. What's your name? Who are you? The voice gave no reply. Only the crackling of the fire seemed to respond, and it gave no coherent answers. Ogma touched his inked wrist, which for a moment seemed to glow blue before fading. There was a hill at Tara, a wide raised area upon which buildings were built into and structures burrowed within. The Tuatha Dé Danann and Fyrbolg had not been the first to live upon the hill, and they would not be the last. Minor dwellings scattered at the base of the hill, but also along it, to the ringed areas along the long houses and barracks where loyal troops trained. A sacred grove rested at the top, yet for its splendor the leaves were all dead and gone. The hill should be green, but for the pox on the land, it would be grand. A glorious monument to the true power. Now, it was merely a gray elevation over a gray land. Lou led Enbar by the reins, half a mile from the hill, Felinus by his side. Already he could sense the barrier that prevented his magic from working, already sensing that Ogma had been right the night before. Part of him wished he could have just free him then, but Ogma was right. He had nobly suffered for his people. But why should they suffer at all? Should Lou not simply march up there and demand that Nuada be placed back on the throne? A trial by combat against Brez? He knew not the man, but already he sensed he hated him. Hatred did not serve his purpose here. A burning came to his head at the thought. The words of the Morrigan returned to him. He sought his father, not war. Clever horse that you are, Inbar, stay out of sight. Find a grove away from the Druid's Grove for peace, and keep yourself safe. And keep Felinus out of trouble, will you? We can't have him chasing stags this close to hunters, lest they find their mistake too late when he sinks his fangs into their throat. He removed his armor and the sling, leaving himself dressed only in his mist-gray tunic and sash, with Fragarak at his side. He looked to the sword and thought better of it, putting it on his horse's saddle. His wits and his wits alone, Ogma had said. He came not as a warrior or even as a Tuatha Dé Danann. He came as a phantom, commanded by the Phantom Queen. Two names came to mind as he approached, getting a sense of the land and its people. Turian and Brigid. He should seek both, Ogma and the Morrigan had suggested. So he should. Lou left the clearing and came upon the small dwellings at the base of the hill, and for the first time among the Tuatha Dé Danann. Among his people, he realized he was tall, taller than most, though hardly the giant his foster father had been. 
Lean though he was, and still lacking facial hair, Lou was not used to being this old, this tall. For all intents and purposes, he was still a ten-year-old, if the sharpest that had ever set foot on the island. It was true in every sense. He was a stranger in a strange land that he did not know. He thought that he did, but Lou did not know this shadow imitation of Ireland. The people were as drab as the land. Dressed in rags, stained with earth and faded in wash, they were tired, sorrowful. The children did not lift their voices in joy as they played. They merely played. The market he passed through did not hum with voices, only whispers, both frustrated and complacent. Few paid him any glance, which was a good thing. A gangly young man, fresh from nowhere, what was there to look at? He didn't want to be seen. Sandals squelched in the mud as he moved through the market, to the main road, headed to the king's hall. It was there that he saw his way in, the smithy, then had mentioned the fate of his uncle. As he traveled the hill, he noted the guards that made a line up the ascent. They barely paid attention, holding their wooden spears in their white tunics and sashes of green. These were certainly children of Donu, but they did not seem interested in serving here. They paid little mind to the crowd that moved upward, headed to work the day at Braze's palace. The sun just above the horizon, they had better hurry. Reaching the summit of the hill, at its center was a stone, standing taller than Lou, surrounded by a cobbled venue that stretched out the grand hall behind it. Slightly further down the hill to the south was the smithy, and Lou, for his part, continued his will to not be seen as he headed there. Surprisingly, it worked. As he approached the smithy, he heard the hard hammering he had grown up knowing, and felt at once at home. He had to duck to enter, realizing that his uncle was not a tall man, though he was certainly wide with muscle and mass. Here in the smithy, he was not alone either. A handful of souls worked, but at the center forge, much greater now than what the fear bulk had ruled, was a man with white hair, his shoulders no less massive than they had once been. Lou put on one of the leather aprons and gloves, finding many of them were a little small on him, and set forth, coming to the man's aid. At his approach, Kabita did not look up, only holding the prongs and hammering the bronze beneath it. Lou moved to take it, yet the smith did not look up to him. Let me take it. Kabita grumbled something and handed the prongs to Lou, who took them, holding them firmly. Kabita hammered harder now than he did back then, but perhaps he was holding back on the young boy, Lou. Not expecting a young man, Lou decided to use that to his advantage. Kavita hammered until it fit the shape of a spear's head, and Lou dipped it into the water, setting it aside to cool. They moved on to the next bit of bronze, and then the next. Lou let his uncle work, and never once did he look up. Never once did Lou demand he do so. The two worked in quick tandem, in sync like they had always been, yet this felt less personal, more like going through the motions. Kavita lacked the soul he put into his work back then with the forge at the fear bulk. Lou felt bad not telling him, but knew that Kavita would lose it when he found out. He'd find out he must. He was Lou's way into the court without drawing attention. Sir, do you have anything for Turian? Kavita scoffed. Turian, there are horses more deserving of weapons than that thundering idiot. Who are you to ask such a thing, boy? When he looked up, Lou already had his finger to his mouth. It took Kavita a moment, but he realized very quickly his eyes widening, the breath leaving his body. I heard there was an order due, and I am to bring it to him. He told me to bring you to uh, him as well. Shall we go then, Smith Gavita? Eyes wet, Gavita regained his breath and nodded, going to a pile of weapons beside the door. Come then, lad, I've, I've work to do. 
Lou led him out the door, and no sooner than they were out the door than Lou felt a massive arm grabbing him behind and lifting him in the air. Gavita weeping. You little... I thought I'd lost you. Seven years, I cried. Seven years, I thought it was my fault that you had died in that battle. He put Lou back down and turned him around, smiling through the tears. Where have you been? How did you escape the sons of Yakid? Lou shook his head, looking around. No one seemed to have noticed, and the forges behind them roared so loudly that no one could hear them. But he was nervous. Birog, the fairy woman took me to my foster father. Gavita sighed, stepping back. You've been to Tirnanog, Hand of Nawada, boy. It's been five days for me, four in the city of youth. Yet seven years have passed here? Gavita shook his head. It's that fairy magic, the cunning of the Danashi. But you're back in faith and family, boy. You grew up like an oak tree. Your father will be pleased. Lou laughed. That's part of why I'm here. I, I have to see him. I don't blame you. You've never met him. But why do you seek Turian? I was told to seek him out, that he was loyal to our people still, he and the queen. Kavita nodded. That much is true. But don't mention your father, if you could help it. Turian has it out for Kian, and myself and our brothers by proxy. Yet I serve the court, and Turian is a minister of that court. I receive his patronage from time to time. Lou furrowed his brow, confused. One would think that a feuding minister would go to someone else. Kavita laughed at his nephew. And sacrifice quality. None can question my skill, not even you, young pup. And look at you, with such long locks, but can't grow a proper beard. Now can you, just like your father? Gavita shook his head. You should meet him, I think. You're ready. He is ready, more likely. Lou nodded, not bothering to tell Gavita his full goal. They headed around the palace to the front gate, and Lou pulled his hood above his head. They said pleasantries to the guards, explaining that the weapon was for Turian, and entered without much more of a hitch. The guards were lax, Lou noted. The hall was long, a wide thing on both sides with four tables before a massive fire, above which was a hanging chandelier of carved ivory parts. Beyond that were two further tables, and a raised area upon which another table sat. At the head of the table sat the most beautiful man Lou had ever seen, blonde locks brought down in well-spun braids, marked with beads of blue. His outfit was fine and resilient, blue and red, with a sword at his side with facial hair that marked him both happy and well-groomed. He looked more kingly than Nawada had looked by miles, and ate with a delicacy that made him both regal and refined. This was Brez, king of the Tuatha Dé Danann and high king of all the land. At his side sat his son, very much like his father save with fiery locks the color of a brilliant red dawn. To his right, the queen's throne sat empty. Around the king sat a number of men, all talking and laughing, many lacking the finery of their lord. Still they surrounded him, listened to his every word, laughing with him. Yet Lou could not stop thinking that upon their faces was a hungry look, as if they would eat the bones the king dropped from his table if he were to only do so. Not one had a single morsel to eat, yet Brez had plenty. A lavish plate of fine meal bread, a full goose to match, with a proper pie and roast. He picked liberally, as did his son from these, yet not a single man among them was brave enough to take a bit of food from the table, nor did any of the plates have food upon them. Nearby, a man sat with his harp, a thing of silver he plucked at, toying with words no one else could hear. Lou regarded him with a smile, and one was given in return, yet nothing else passed between them. Kavita made eye contact with one of the men, a husky man of silver hair and long nose, his chin bristling in need of a cut. 
The man left the king's table and his face transformed. No longer was he smiling until the lines of his face were cast as if carved from stone, but full of rage and sorrow. Dressed in greens and grays, he led Gavita and Lou to a side corridor, closing the door behind them. Why do you seek me out in public like a common dog? His voice was like honey, yet held a harsh tone to it. Turian was none too happy to see Gavita, and Lou took a strong dislike to him instantly. Your spear is ready, Gavita presented it. Turian took it, examined it, and broke into a smile. A shame it shall not see Fomorian blood sooner, or I would thank you more heartily. What was our price? A milking cow, I believe. Turian scoffed. A milking cow for quivering metal? I think not, Smith of Kings. A hog and two sow, ready for childbearing. Lou broke in, not bothering with his hood. Is it a normal occurrence to renegotiate the bartering price an honorable man agrees upon? Is that a common occurrence in the court of King Brez? Turian turned to him suddenly and threw back Lou's hood. A pity, I thought you keen, that I could test this blade. No, boy, it is dishonorable in the highest order. Yet that is the way of things in the court of King Brez. My herd was stolen by Brez's father, not three nights hence. I spoke to the king. He demanded I give him my last milking cow, which I had hidden away. So, as much as it irks me, I will give what I can and make up the difference later, when I can, if I can. Or are you utterly ignorant of the sorrows of our land, boy? Lou felt a flush with anger, almost stepping forward when Gavita put a hand to his chest. The boy knows not of our troubles or ways, Turian. Spare him your spite. He hails from Albion and seeks an audience with the queen. Tyrion again scoffed, and Lou wanted to see the last of his heir leave him, if yet he scoffed again. So do all growing weeds wish the sun to kiss them, yet she does not come at the beckoning of others. Lou glowered. She will come if it is the Morrigan's will. Both Gavita and Turian turned to him then, their eyes wide. You come on the orders of the Phantom Queen? Turian spoke in barely a whisper. Lou nodded. Tyrion gave Gavita a look, his watery eyes narrowing. Who are you, lad? A foreigner does not do the bidding of the Raven Queen. I am no foreigner, but I have spent time in Tirnanog. She found me as I arrived on the western shores and sent me on this quest. I am to seek Brigid, Queen of the Tuatha Dé Danann, who will help me along. My success is the success of us all, Tyrion. He spoke boldly, treating him as an equal. A respect Tyrion did not deserve, though he would not see it that way. And your name? Gavita broke in before Luke could speak it. Ask not his name, Turian, just do as he says. The Phantom Queen does not like to be kept waiting. Turian regarded both men. Before spear in hand, he left the room, leaving the door open behind him. Gavita turned to him, slamming his massive fist into Luke's shoulder. It stung, and he almost buckled over. The Morrigan? The Phantom Queen set you on this bloody quest? Why didn't you say anything, you idiot boy? I didn't think it necessary, and I know you don't hold with superstition. That's not superstition. You do as the Morrigan compels you until your dying breath. Lou considered his uncle's panic, strange considering his hatred of magic and superstition. There was laughter from the other room as Brez spoke eloquently, just beyond understanding. Lou had the urge to go back out there and beat him with that wooden plate. That was not the command of the Morrigan. And from the way he had reacted to her mere voice, he would not wish to go against her will in any way. Footsteps approached, and Turian led a woman to the door before disappearing down the hall, his voice rejoining the laughter. 
Her hair was a thick crown of curled fire wrapped in a bun at the back of her head. About her neck was a torque of gold, just above the collar of her flowing red and gold dress. Lou could find no age to her, no sense of youth or weathered wrinkle upon her, and felt that she had a gift of eternity where her looks were concerned. Her eyes were shining emeralds, her face a round thing with the dimples she wore naturally, even in her apprehensive look. Kavita the smith, well met. Who is this youth who would summon the queen? I am Lou. The queen beheld him, looking him up and down. She was almost his equal in height, yet had a calmness to her appearance. A calmness, Lou realized, could quickly turn to fiery rage. Lou, son of Nawada, whom the Fearbulg slew while fostering there? Lou shook his head. That I was, but I was not slain, and Nawada is not my father. The queen smiled. No, I see that now. You have the look of Kian upon you, so the rumors were true after all. And he fostered you with the fairies after Kavita and Taltu? Lou nodded. She was quite canny. Then you can count me as a friend and ally. I am Bridget, daughter of the Dagda. Though I am young, I am your great aunt by technicality. Lou looked to Gavita, who nodded with a smile. The Dagda has many children. Bridget smiled. Wisdom is its own reward, it seems. Looking back at the sudden burst of laughter from the Great Hall, her smile faded. Tyrion insisted, you come in on the insistence of the Phantom Queen? Again, Lou nodded. She sent me here to ask about my father's whereabouts. Bridget shook her head. I know only what I hear. When my husband took the throne and began peace talks with Balor of the Evil Eye, like many, your father took to wandering the land. Last I heard, he was north of here, riding in the mountains of Elu. You would be wise to start there. Can you track? Lou nodded, though he had never tracked on the island, only in Tirnanog. He did not mention that. You had better hurry fast, though. There's no love between Turian and your father, for your father broke his only daughter's heart. She will not marry to cement alliances for want of him. He claims worse, but Kian isn't the type to force others into things, and whomever he sets his eyes upon, man or woman, Kian shares their bed. But Turian has had it out for him for a time, and his son's been on a hunting trip not five days hence. If they're in the same territory, there's bound to be trouble. She turned back to the hallway, where further laughter rose. There then came a booming voice from the door, and with it a struggle. Brez, you flaccid dog! You've a wolf among your kind, and I aim to find him. Bridge's eyes went wide. Fomorians. I have the peace to keep. Gavita, you know the side doors? Gavita nodded, grabbing Lou's arm with his passive hands. Get Lou through them and out of sight. Lou, can you make for the north? Have you steed and means? I have the horse of Ananan McLear, and his hound, his sword, and his sling. Bridget gasped and smiled. Then make with haste, or the storm will fall upon you. She said not another word before turning, heading back into the main hall, where she interceded before her husband could. What dark voice dares disturb the peace of Tata? Name your grievance and we will have an accord. They were gone before Lou could hear any further words. His hood returned upon his head. Gavita led him to a gap in the fence around the hill, beside one of the southern groves. Lou made through it, and through the underbrush, re-emerging in the village nearby. An entire contingent of Fomorians had appeared, harassing and assailing the innocent souls at market. Lou did his best to ignore them and be ignored, though it wore against his very soul to let such injustice lie. It was his duty in the end to defeat the monsters and send them back to the sea, and here he could do nothing, not without blade or horse or nothing but a morsel of magic dampened by far stronger forces at work. 
He emerged on the other side of the market, and there in the distance got Enbar, undisturbed. Felinus, come! Enbar, make haste. Fate has set us here, it works against us, nonetheless. Goddessy is researched, written, and produced by Greg Wright. Additional writing and editing by Sydney Yeager, devoted to Bridget. Music by Scott Buckley. Additional sounds by Mr. Oralization. We are on social media. Look for us as The Goddessy Podcast, and let's hang out at a safe distance. Want to support the show? Check us out on Patreon, or leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Goddessy releases new material every Monday. See you then.